0: Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. What do young people
1: who are in what we call Generation Z think about life? What do they think about the church? What do they think about Christianity? What do they think about truth? What do they think about moral issues? We're going to talk about that today with my friend Jonathan Morrow, who. As you know, is at Impact 360 and has written a number of great books. Impact 360 is a gap year program that I teach at uh, once a year and uh, many other apologists teach down there too. And he and George Barna, the great uh, the great Christian pollster, he, meaning Impact 360, not just Jonathan Morrow, but Impact 360, and George Barna got together and just released an amazing survey about... Generation Z. Now, who's Generation Z? Those are people below 19 years old or so. Anybody born, say, from 1999 on. And we're going to get into what they believe in, how you can reach such people a little bit later in the program. But first, we need to talk about the great Billy Graham. Can you imagine filling Madison Square Garden six nights per week for 16 weeks in a row? That's what Billy Graham did in 1957. Madison Square Garden, seats about 20,000. Can you imagine that? People in New York City coming to hear about Jesus every night for 16 weeks. They had to extend the the crusade. I can't remember how long it was supposed to be when it started, but it went for 16 weeks. And they probably could have gone longer, but they had other events scheduled there. And as you know, he's preached all over the world, Billy Graham. He preached personally over 400 crusades, totaling to more than 215 million people in person. Not to say how many people he he uh, he reached, and is still reaching, by the way, over television. And Billy, as you know, just died this week at the age of 99. He grew up here in Charlotte, where we are. And he had a younger brother by the name of Melvin, Melvin Graham. Melvin, I knew many years ago when I first moved to Charlotte. What a wonderful man who had a son, also named Melvin, who still lives here in Charlotte. He's a businessman, another fine gentleman. And uh, I think Melvin died in 2003. Uh, Melvin used to drive his pickup truck around and he just owned a lot of land in this area and he'd develop land and he would just. He would, everybody knew him. He was just a, a, a country farm boy, a wonderful man. Well, he was younger brother of Billy, and he died before Billy did, obviously, back in 2003. And I went to his funeral. It was here in Charlotte, North Carolina at Central Church of God, a wonderful church uh, just to the south of the city. And Billy came and preached the, the service for his brother. And I remember him coming out there. He had a cane at that point. And he said, "I never thought I would go after Bill. Or I mean, after Melvin. I thought, me being older, I would, I would go to be with the Lord before Melvin. But Melvin went before me. And then he told the story about he had, about he and Melvin growing up here in Charlotte, and they worked on a dairy farm. They milked a lot of cows, according to Billy. And and uh, he in this service <laughs> said that." When I got the call to preach, when I knew I was going to preach, I was going to go off and preach. I said to Melvin, I said, Melvin, I got the call to preach. The Lord wants me to go preach. And Melvin said, Billy, what about the cows? He was worried about the cows. And so the rest is history. As you know, Uh, Billy Graham has reached more people for Christ than probably anybody in history. Uh, due to technology and the fact that he traveled all over the world, if you ever get a chance to come to Charlotte, you need to go to the billy graham library it 's literally four minutes from the airport. You come out of the airport and you get on Billy Graham Parkway and you drive a few miles and there you are right at the Billy Graham Library, where his funeral will be next week it 's where he will be buried uh his Wife Ruth is buried there at the Billy Graham Library. It's an amazing library. You go in there and you walk through it, and it's incredible to see the impact how one humble man, or the impact that one humble man could have for Christ. And one of the reasons I think he was so successful was because he was relentlessly focused on one thing. He had one goal in mind, and that is saving souls for Christ. It was all about the gospel with Billy. He was focused. He didn't get bogged down in secondary issues. He took Romans 14 to heart. Romans 14, which basically says, don't major in the minors when it comes to these moral issues. And he certainly majored in the majors when it came to the gospel. There is a God, you are not Him. This God loves you, but He's also a judge. You have fallen short of the standard that is God's nature. And the only way that you can be reconciled to God is to accept what Christ has done for you in your place, that he has lived the perfect life, he died, and he rose again to show that he truly was God, and that by trusting in him, you can be reconciled to him forever. That's the message that Billy Graham relentlessly preached wherever he went. And we have to focus on that message. An apologist listening to me right now, this is just a show largely about apologetics. If we're doing apologetics just to win arguments, that's not the reason we do apologetics. We do apologetics to give people reasons to know that the gospel's true. To give people reasons to know that Jesus really died and rose again. And that by trusting in him, you not only can be forgiven, but you can be given his righteousness. So my plea to you, if you're somebody out there who's interested in apologetics, don't have apologetics take the place of the gospel. Apologetics, giving evidence for the faith, supports the gospel. If you're not trying to get people to the gospel, then you're not really doing the work of an apologist. Now, this doesn't mean that you always have to get to the gospel in every conversation. I don't mean that at all. What I mean to say is is that we have to make sure that we're trying to get people to understand who Jesus really is and what he did for us. So I try and focus on the four major issues that I think are necessary to show that Christianity is true. And when I go to a college campus, I just was at two college campuses this week, University of Tennessee and East Tennessee State. Had great crowds at both, great questions at both. You can actually see these presentations because we're streaming them live. If you go to our Facebook page, you can, you can watch them. And I just concentrate on the four major questions. Does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? And are the New Testament documents telling us the truth about the resurrection? Because if truth exists, God exists, miracles are possible, and Jesus rose from the dead, well, game over, Christianity's true. Now, I do take questions on other issues, like the age of the earth. These are secondary issues. Evolution, inerrancy. You say inerrancy is a secondary issue? Yeah, inerrancy, I think, is important. But you don't need to be an inerrantist to show that Christianity is true. It, the, 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 it, you just have to show that Jesus rose from the dead. Even if there are errors in the Bible, he could have still risen from the dead. Now, I don't think there are. Don't get me wrong. I'm simply saying it's not necessary for salvation. I, don't, I answer questions, but I don't take a hard stand on denominationalism or Bible translations or secondary moral issues like the use of alcohol or not or secondary political issues. Stay focused on the big issues. And that's what Billy Graham did. Now, obviously, he had certain personal gifts that allowed him to be so affable and so likable. And the Holy Spirit obviously was with him. So he had some gifts from God that allowed him to do what he did. But personally, he focused on the gospel and he stayed on the gospel. And he's nearly universally hailed as a wonderful man of integrity who exhibited the love of Christ. Nearly universally hailed as that. Who else do you know who's like that? Very few people. A wonderful man. A wonderful legacy. And I was just honored to, to meet him just once. We're going to stay focused. We're going to stay focused on the gospel as well here. When we come back, we'll talk about how you can help young people focus on the gospel. So don't go away. I'm Frank Turek back in just two minutes.
0: If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type cross-examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website, where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily.
1: What do young people believe today about Christianity, about moral issues, about life in general? There's probably no better resource than the brand new Gen Z survey put out by Barna and Impact 360. This new survey, which just came out about a month ago, called The Culture, Beliefs, and Motivation Shaping the Next Generation, as I say, was put out. You've heard the name George Barna. We've had him on the program before. Probably the top Christian pollster in the world. He reproduced it with in partnership with Impact 360, the Impact 360 Institute. Uh, whom my friend Jonathan Morrow is a part of. And I've had Jonathan on the program several times before. You've probably heard of his book, Welcome to College. He also helped write Is God Just a Human Invention, along with Sean McDowell and some other works. So, Jonathan, great having you on the program. Frank, always good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Now, this was a pretty robust undertaking to try and discover What young people who were born after 1999, so we're talking about kids who are, you know, 19 and younger, called Gen Z, what they believe about some big issues pertaining to the church, Christianity, truth, morality, all these issues. How did you come together with Barna to do this and why?
2: Yeah, for sure. You know, well, here at Impact 360 Institute, we get to work with the next generation. We get to work with Gen Z. We get to work with Millennials. You know, in our gap year and our summer experiences, and we know the questions we get. We know the, you know, the insecurities, the questions, the doubts, the struggles. We know the trends that we see, um, and then I know the trends I see when I speak, like you do, and around the country doing different things. But what we wanted was a broader lens on the cultural kind of trends because no one—I mean, everyone has talked for a lot of um, a lot of years now about millennials, and that's great. I David Kinnaman did a fabulous job with the book "You Lost Me," and he's the president of the Barna Group. And so one of the things was, hey, no one's really done a deep dive on the spiritual outlook, the moral outlook, what do they think about identity and sexuality, and all these questions at a deep dive level. So we uh, we reached out to Barna, reached out to David Kahneman, and we, several years ago, and we've been working with their excellent team, Brooke Hempel and the whole team there at Barna, really the last year and a half, studying Gen Z. We did focus groups. It's a nationally representative uh, survey. We, we, you know, we talked to Past youth pastors, we talked to parents, just trying to triangulate around kind of what this generation believe and why. And so, we really wanted to do that to kind of bring that lens to the church, so that we're kind of living in reality. There's, you know, there's a reality that is, and there's a reality that we want to be, and sometimes those aren't the same. And so, hopefully, we'll talk about some of that. Um, but that's that's kind of how we got going. We had a great experience with that, and really excited to see already just how people have begun using and talking about the study um, that we did on Gen Z.
1: Now, you came away with six trends. Uh, we can't talk about all these trends here. We don't have time. But why don't you just list the six trends that you discovered in investigating this Gen Z generation? Again, these are these are kids, young people born 1999 and after. What did you discover about them? The six the six trends.
2: Yeah, so they're around 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 69 70 million of them. And so the six trends that we discovered is working on this with the Barna Group was their, number one, they're screenagers. Number mm-hmm. two, their worldview is post-Christian. Number three, safe spaces are normal. Number four, real safety is a myth. Five, they are diverse. And six, their parents are double-minded. We can unpack that. Um, but basically, there's some different lenses that we saw, themes that emerge, and then categories within all that around the biggest questions of life. But those are some of the kind of observations that we kind of synthesized at the end of it.
1: All right, let's unpack just a couple of them. It should come as no surprise that teenagers today are screen in the sense they spend a lot of time in front of a screen. How much time?
2: Yeah, so what we found in our study is that 57% use screen media four-plus hours a day, and mm-hmm. several um, use it even higher than that, which is a ton of time. And that's, I mean, just, and they're all pretty pleased with the amount of time that they spend online. And so when you think about that, I mean, you sleep for about eight hours. If you're lucky, most people don't do that anymore. Um, but four hours of content, information, and, and the thing that you know that we'll talk about maybe a little later in the application part is it's it's rewiring them as well as the content itself. And so just from a sheer uh, volume, the screened, they've been raised in screens. They're the, Gen Z is the, they're the kids of Gen X and millennial parents, which is different because millennials are parents of boomers. So what does that mean? Well, it means, that Gen Z has been raised with their parents with their phones in their hands as well. And so that's kind of part of this process. The screens are a major part of Gen Z's life um, for good or ill, and maybe we can talk about some of the implications
1: of that. Now, yeah, now when you say it rewires them, what does that mean? Are you saying that they learn differently because they're continually bombarded with stimuli and they have all these choices, or what does that mean to say they're rewired?
2: Yeah, so there's, there's three layers. One is the actual content of the worldview itself. And that's Mm -hmm. like the ideas themselves. Like, what is this actually teaching them about truth and morality and life and everything else in the process? Um, You know, one of the things I came across, you know, um, director of Cornell Research, Janice Woodlock, uh, had this quote. She says, If you wanted to create an environment to churn out really angsty people, we've done it. They're in a cauldron of stimulus they can't get away from or don't want to get away from or don't know how. To get away from, and so the idea there is, it's rewiring their thought processes. There's a lot of journals in the individual psychology on this. There's a, their capacity for linear thinking has been replaced. They're kind of always bombarded, you know. Doing research for this, I mean, a lot of screen technology, a lot of even how games and apps and everything reacts, they illuminate the same parts of your brain as you know, crack and cocaine addiction, as wow. well as they've been engineered to do basically what slot machines do to suck people in. Like it's literally the more you're in, you are becoming addicted. And so we're seeing unprecedented levels of psychological, like depression, anxiety among this generation as well. So there's the content, yes. But then there's also it's literally changing the way their brain operates and the way they process information. And it's making them anxious and depressed in the process. And if you throw in social media in the mix where people, you know, about a third say that they've been bullied online Mm -hmm. and and all the identity questions around that and just kind of competing for likes and that whole world it is just a cauldron of just a ton to handle and and so it really has changed what it means to be a teenager i mean to become a teenager we never had to engage this you know solomon famously said in ecclesiastes there's there's nothing new under the sun and, and he's completely correct in what he meant by that but this is new under the sun because you and i weren't raised with every waking moment of ours documented since zero and liked or shared or whatever, and they've had to come of age in that and now live and breathe in it. So it's having a massive impact on Gen Z.
1: Now, in the write-up of this book, this is a book you can get, by the way, friends, this entire uh, survey, which is in a nice color book that's, let me see how many pages is this book, Jonathan. It's a little over 100 pages. yeah. Yeah, 125 pages, all beautifully illustrated with all sorts of charts and graphs and all this, if you really want to dive in on what... Gen Z again. These are kids that are born 1999 and after. What they think about big issues of life. Um, I'm I'm reading here on page 19 where kids are really worried that they're going to miss out on something. It's called the fear of missing out, F O M O. You have here. Yeah, phone and that's up. what social media does. Uh, does it? It causes kids to think they got to be a part. Of something, and I've heard elsewhere, I don't know if I read it in your report or not, that the number one sort of feeling you walk away from if you spend too much time on social media is envy. Because Mm -hmm. why does he have more likes than I do, right? (laughs) Or how come nobody's recognized my post? And there's this tremendous pressure, as you have here in the report, for kids to always look like they're happy and having a great time and everything's good, which which has got to be hard to live up to.
2: It's exhausting. I mean, yeah. You know, thirty thirty nine percent say looking at other people's posts often makes me feel bad about the lack of excitement in my own life. I mean, I mean, they're competing for likes. You know, if they post something and it doesn't get, you know, say a hundred likes, they'll just delete it and they'll try again, or they'll take eighty pictures to get the right one. And then, and then here's the thing: and, and sociologists are doing more and more research on this, as well as they're they're getting really good at at appearing happy, not being mm. happy, but but having to look like they're happy. And that's what's exhausting and contributing to a lot of these issues as well.
1: And, uh, you know, I went out to a church in uh, Utah uh, earlier last month, and uh, the church sent me some statistics on the culture in Utah, predominantly Mormon, about 70% Mormon. And I was shocked. Some of the stats they sent me, you know, number one per capita in pornography, number one in in antidepressant use, number one in plastic surgery, number one in teenage suicide. And you're going the Mormons? Why? And it's because it's such a performance driven religion, it seems, that you have to perform in order to be good enough. And it seems like social media sort of does the same thing. You got to perform to feel better about yourself. And that's why it appears, according to your study here, that Gen Z, these kids, uh, in fact, you was back to page 19 on the report, you say in 2011, for the first time in 24 years, the teen suicide rate was higher than the teen homicide rate. Now, Jonathan, what do you say to a parent uh, who's got kids who are looking at screens eight hours a day? I mean, can they realistically reel that back? What do they do?
2: Yeah, so that's a very practical question, and so here's what I would say, and this is one of the things I think we must do. I think it's time for the church and Christians to be a little bit, countercultural on this Mm -hmm. not in a legalistic god will love you more if kind of way or i want to steal all your fun kind of way but in a i care about you and you're not getting a phone i mean goodness i mean there's like eight year old seven year olds getting a smartphone and it'll turn them loose on these things i mean in some of here's the reasoning is like well i mean here's what happens the average family we're all super busy i get that I mean, you're taking your kids everywhere. you got soccer practice and basketball practice and baseball and, you know, music lessons, and you're running around, and then you got maybe smaller kids mixed in there. So it's easy to throw them a phone and just kind of entertain them, and I get that. The problem is, is that's in opening them up to a whole world of unmediated access, and mm. so here's what I would say. Um, the number one reason I often hear for parents why they give their kids a cell phone is like, well, they're going over to somebody's house. I want them to be safe, and they can call me if they need a ride home. Mm-hmm. Let me push gently back against that and say, "Hey, great. There's probably an adult there. Ask them to borrow their phone to call you when it's time to pick them up." Mm-hmm. I mean, I used to we used to do this stuff all the time. Some of this stuff we can handle in different ways because if that's the only reason you're giving your kid a phone, is that's not a really good reason because it's un—I mean, unlocking. We won't even get into the pornography. I mean, there is just—I mean, one in five searches on a on a smartphone is for pornography, mm-hmm. and so that's just mind-boggling. And so to just hand this.
1: That's a, not to too it. smart, yeah.
2: Yeah, it's just not working. So we need to be countercultural. We don't want to be luddites. We're not like against technology and Christians. We lo- we, we, we want to do things like that, but um, we want to help prepare them. How do we model it? And here's the here's the big one: um, How do our kids see us do it? I mean, sometimes
1: right, you exactly. got to put the phone down. <laughs> Take
2: yeah. away, put the phone away from dinner.
1: Let's we're stop. yeah, we're checking email. <laughs> we're we're texting people across the table. Pass the salt. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, what do you think about this? <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're talking to Jonathan Morrow. His new survey along with George Varna from Impact 360 is Gen Z. What do you know about them? How can you better reach them? We're going to talk more about it, and particularly how their worldview is post-Christian right after the break. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in two minutes college campuses are hostile to the Christian faith and three out of four young people walk away from the church once they go to college that's why we go to college campuses and present I don't have enough faith to be an atheist in the United States and even all over the world when we do this we don't charge students a dime that's why we need your financial support in fact over the past couple of years we've been able to grow dramatically because of your generous support and 100 percent of your donations go to ministry zero percent go to buildings so when you give to cross-examined you'll be giving to help us go reach young people where they are would you consider giving today Thank you so much, and thank you so much for what you've done already. Gen Z, young people, what do they think? What do they feel? How can you reach them? We're talking about it today with my friend Jonathan Morrow. Before I get back to Jonathan, don't forget, we've got CIA, the cross Examine Instructor Academy, coming up again this August, our 11th annual. This time it'll be in Dallas, Texas. And it's August 16th to the 18th, I believe. You've got to apply for that. And before that happens, we actually have advanced CIA. These are for CIA graduates or people that have significant apologetics experience and they just want to take it to the next level. Advanced CIA will be here in Charlotte in about two and a half months, uh, May 3rd to 5th. The deadline on that is March 15th. you got to go to crossexamine.org, click on uh, events, and you'll see advanced CIA there. Make sure you apply for that soon. Make sure you apply for that soon because we're taking a small group. It's going to be an intimate group, new stuff in Advanced CIA that you can go to the website to see what it's about. And we're also even going to have a representative, an acquisitions editor from, John's, uh, from David C. Cook, I should say, uh, a publisher. And that publisher can help you get your book proposal accepted. So we're going to be talking about how to take your ministry to the next level at Advanced CIA, but you've got to apply soon. So go to crossexamine.org for more. Jonathan Morrow, you were in the first CIA, weren't you? I was. Yeah, way back in like 08, I think that was, or 07. Back I can't today. remember. It's been been so far back. Now, Jonathan, in this new survey, the Gen Z survey, um, you say the second major theme that you identified was that Gen Z's worldview is post-Christian. What, is it, what do you mean by that? What does that mean?
2: Yeah, so generally speaking, what does that mean? Well, post means after Christian. So we've never been a truly Christian culture, but we have been Christianized in certain ways in terms of our views about God and morality and truth and some of those kind of things. So we're kind of moving beyond that. And what does that mean from a study um, kind of statistics on this? Well, the percentage of people with a biblical worldview, um, as long as the Barna Group has been tracking this for the last 25 years, has declined. So, for example, the Boomers had about 10% had a biblical worldview according to the way they measure it. Gen X had about 7%. Millennials, about 6%. Gen Z, only 4% of Gen Z has a biblical worldview, so today's mm. teenagers. And that's still a pretty minimal kind of set of things to affirm to qualify for that. And if you if you drill down a little bit more, what you'll find is 34% of Gen Z, today's teenagers, their religious affiliation is either atheist, agnostic, or none. And if you drill down a little further you'll see that teens 13 to 18 years old are twice as likely as adults to say they're atheists as the general population. So those are some of the kinds of trends that show us that they're really, in many ways, kind of the least Christian generation to date. And so there Mm -hmm. might be an unchurched Christian that might say they're a Christian, a church Christian, and then an engaged Christian who kind of has kind of some—they go to church, they read the Bible, there might be a small group. So but even that number is, is less than it's ever been either, in that regard. So a lot of what's happening is is people are, A, not feeling some of the pressure to feel or say they're Christian anymore, like they used to. You know, used to oh, can't admit I'm an atheist, so it's kind of taboo. That's not so much the case anymore. I mean, you've written books on this, you debated Christopher Hitchens, one of the new atheists, so there's the new atheism, which says, you know, Christianity is not just false, but dangerous. Mm-hmm. But then you also have this atheism 2.0 kind of stuff, which is, yeah, we know God doesn't exist, so let's, how do we appropriate the religious insights we've gained to this idea of atheism. And so all that squishiness is in the middle of this next generation, some of that skepticism, and they don't have those shared values or assumptions about truth, God, and some of that kind of stuff. But that's, that's in kind of in a, a little bit of a snapshot of what it looks like for the post-Christian
1: culture. So if society. you were presenting or trying to reach someone who had these characteristics in Gen Z – Uh, when it comes to truth, how would you try and bring them along to realize that there is objective truth, and this postmodern idea that there is no truth, or you got your truth, I got my truth, can't really be true. How would you go about doing that?
2: Yeah, so I think that's good. One of the encouraging things from a trend standpoint is we found that 46% of Gen Z, basically half of teens, want factual evidence to support their beliefs. Mm. So that's good news for Christianity. I mean, we, we get to present on Christianity all the time, and so I think there's a large myth out there that people won't engage around the question of truth. I mean this generation is completely confused when it comes to moral and spiritual truth. I mean about twenty four percent strongly agreed that basically what's true about morality changes over time with society um, mm. and that's a pretty disastrous kind of way to look at the world you know and then well, only thirty four percent of Gen Z could strongly agree that believing that lying is morally wrong so so there's confusion, but they want evidence. And so a lot of that is us just, just slowing down and talking and asking questions. Well, what do you mean by truth? What do you think this is? Why is this true? Is there a way things are just because you believe something? Does that make it true and real? Is sincerity enough? Or can I be sincerely wrong? Mm-hmm. I mean, some of those kind of things in conversations we have to see. It, Frank, it was fascinating when we did these focus groups with the Barna group. We did Christian groups and um, non-Christians, and, The amount of their hesitancy to say that something was actually true was pretty amazing, even among ones where they knew they were all Christians and they were trying to talk about some of these same questions. They were real hesitant to step on people's toes. They didn't want to come across as judgmental and and some of those kind of things. So one of the hallmarks of this generation is just really moral and spiritual confusion, and I think a lot of it stems from this shift from emphasizing feelings over thinking. And if we're going to help train this generation to think biblically and think Christianly about life, then we've got to help them say, you know what, what do you think about that? Not just how you feel, because how you feel doesn't determine what's real. Reality just doesn't work that way.
1: Yeah, so they, uh, I guess they don't recognize the self-defeating nature of this postmodern or relativistic viewpoint that, you know, there is no truth. Is that true? Uh. And they think it's true that uh, they ought not tell other people that certain things are true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> uh, I think we have to point out the self-defeating nature of relativism and postmodernism because you can't go further than that if if they are. Uh, believing that all truth is relative and there is no objective truth, it doesn't matter if you show them that the resurrection actually occurred. They're just going to say that's your truth, right? <laughs> yeah. So they're
2: like, you do you. That's fine. Uh-huh. If you don't believe it. That helps to you if you make makes you feel better or whatever.
1: Now I'm I'm looking in here because I read this earlier. I'm looking, and by the way, again, we're talking to Jonathan Morrow, who's of the Impact uh, 360 Institute down there, south of Atlanta, Georgia. He teamed up with the Barna organization, his his group did, his organization did, to come out with a brand new survey, which was done over, pretty much over 2017. And it's a Gen Z, not just survey, but also focus group data, as Jonathan's been saying. And Jonathan, I'm looking for it in here. I can't find it right now for some reason. But I remember in this text somewhere, and you can point out where it is, that only 28% of the people surveyed think that. Christianity and science are compatible. Is that right? Did I did I read that yeah, wrong? Pretty, yeah, Where is that?
2: About twenty four percent of Gen Z, um, but actually twenty eight percent on that one. Twenty four was one of the different age okay. demographics. And one of the interesting things was half of church going teams say that church seems to reject much of what science tells us. So forty nine percent.
1: Okay, before, so before. so far we've identified that. Too much screen can be a problem, and Gen Z seems not to believe in objective truth or absolute truth, and they also somehow think that science and Christianity are not compatible. Now, why do you think they think that, Jonathan?
2: Yeah, I think what they've done there is they've absorbed kind of this cultural assumption that's never argued for, it's just assumed, and it's this belief called scientism, which basically says science is the only or at least best way to know something. And the problem is, is that's not a scientific statement, that's a philosophical statement about science, so it's right. self-defeating earlier, so that's a big problem, so it can't possibly be true. But the second thing is, is they are equating science with a worldview of naturalism, and as you know, like, in your audience, you knows, the worldview is just a way of viewing the world, it's how you answer the biggest questions of life. But if naturalism is true, there is a conflict between naturalism and Christianity, because naturalism says all that exists is physics, chemistry, you know, genetics, biology. That's it. That's all that's in the box. It's closed. And the problem is they've equated that with science. But science is simply the rational investigation of the physical world. Christianity, I mean, the Judeo-Christian world gave us the scientific um, enterprise. You know, there was a rational mind, so we ought to expect laws and a lawgiver and investigate that. So Christians aren't anti-science, but they are anti-naturalism. But our culture you know, worships at the altar of science. So they trot out the lab coats and people, you know, neuroscientists tell us about morality. It was like, what, what do they have to, I mean, I'm happy for them to tell me about C-fibers firing in the brain and neuroplasticity and some of these kinds of things, but how are they all of a sudden the expert on morality or history or, or virtue or anything like that just because they have, you know, a scientific background? And so these young people and these Gen Z teenagers have grown up in a world which exalts science. It treats faith as kind of wishing or or kind of believing without evidence, and so it pits faith versus reason, faith versus science, and it pits Christianity versus science. So it's like, well, when I go on a Sunday morning, you know, I'm going to think about faith kind of stuff, and then the rest of the time in my reality and existence, I'm going to teach, I'm going to talk about knowledge. And so they they haven't been taught well; they've been discipled um, by their iPhones and their smartphones along the way. And one of the things that they've been learning is that is that science is um, is kind of the king in our culture, and but they but they've absorbed that as naturalism, not truly what science is. So we got to help pull those apart and show that they're actually powerful scientific signposts. Like you write in stealing for, from God in your excellent book, and Sean and I write in if God is human invention, actually there's strong scientific signposts that point in the direction of God for a designer and the origin of the universe and origin of consciousness and all these kinds of things. So. We've got to do a better job of having that conversation, focusing on what matters most first, that God created, and then to have the conversation about how God created a little bit later and get some of those conversations back on the table for him.
1: Yeah, ironically, it's not Christianity and science that are at odds. It's naturalism and science because if naturalism is true, if we're just molecular machines, we're just moist robots, we shouldn't even be able to do science. <laughs> we shouldn't trust any of our thoughts. So ironically, ironically, it's exactly opposite to what the atheists are saying, and unfortunately, it's opposite what many Gen Z young people are thinking. And I think also, Jonathan, they confuse advances in technology with – they confuse that with – Origin questions like how did the universe get here? How did first life get here? How did subsequent life forms get here? Well, those three questions, the origin of the universe, the origin of first life and the origin of subsequent life forms, they're all historical questions, whereas technology deals with how can you harness the natural laws that exist today to make our lives better? Well, I mean, you can be really good at technology, but that that doesn't mean that you know how the universe came into existence or how the first life came into existence or how Uh, Subsequent life forms came into existence. Those are origin questions, and technology deals with empirical questions today. So advancing technology doesn't tell us anything about whether or not there was a creator or whether or not there was a... uh, Uh, a creator for first life or a creator of the universe there are two different categories of science and I think people confuse those quite a bit so we need to clear that up as well I try and do it in the book Stealing from God and of course your book uh, Is God Just a Human Invention can help them as well we're talking to Jonathan Morrow participant in a new survey mission to new survey new focus group study on gen z we'll tell you how to get it right after the break i'm frank turek don't go away we're back in just two minutes
0: thank you for listening to the cross-examine podcast this material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you if you wish to support future podcasts just go to crossexamine.org and click on the donate button or simply use the donate feature directly on our app thanks
1: Welcome back to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. I want to mention that uh, tonight I'll be in Maple Valley, Washington. That's out near Seattle uh, for a session at Hope Fellowship. And then uh, tomorrow morning, Sunday, February 25th, I'll be speaking at the morning service. And then also a 6 p.m. session. We're going to do I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, all three sessions. So tonight it's 6 Pacific time. And then 9 a.m., on Sunday tomorrow and then 6pm tomorrow night I don't have enough faith to be an atheist Maple Valley, Washington don't don't often get out toward the Seattle area but I'll be out there and then uh, next week I'll be in Shreveport Louisiana you can check the details for that uh, and then the week after that I will be in Waycross, Georgia on the weekend of March 10th and then we're going to get into other presentations at college campuses. We've just done seven college campuses in the past 30 days, and we're going to have uh, Vanderbilt coming up on March 19th and Murray State on the 27th, and I think uh, University of North Carolina at Wilmington's in there some somewhere too. But we'll we'll get you more on that. I'm talking to my friend uh, Jonathan Morrow, and he's. Commissioned a study along with the Barna Group about Gen Z. These are people born after 1999, so they're they're 19 and younger. And uh, we've talked about some of the findings in, so far in this broadcast, but we got to talk a little bit about Jonathan, or a little bit about the uh, what you found with regard to Gen Z's beliefs on gender and sexuality. Get, kind of give us an overview of that. What what did you find?
2: Yeah, and this is one of the ways that we've seen kind of move the fastest among Gen Z and how fast culture is. So, for example, 12% of Gen Z uh, describe their own sexuality as something other than heterosexual, mm. which is a pretty—I mean, that's more uh, than, than the millennials uh, by a good bit um, in right. terms of how they see that. Um, when it comes to gender, for example, 33% of Gen Z say gender is how a person feels, not their birth sex.
1: All right, we need to stop right there. We need to stop right there. Okay, here's this is a big problem, Jonathan. If people I I, I, I don't mean to be flip about this, but if people can't recognize their gender. By just looking at their body, how are they going to recognize that God exists? I mean, what could be more obvious than your than your body? It's right there. You can look at it and see what it, you know, whether you're a male or a female. And so, when people come to me and they say there's just no evidence for God, and I ask them what their gender is and and they're and they're questioning it, I, I, I go, I'm sorry, I can't help you. <laughs> I mean, I just I just can't help you. It's it's right in front of you. Anyway, I just had to say that. Sorry. No. Keep going. Uh,
2: I, no. Yeah. I mean, one of the and that tells you. I mean, as we mentioned earlier about this generation being discipled by smartphones. Mm-hmm. That's one of the lessons that they've learned from social media and the constant and very brilliantly run cultural campaign around normalizing, you know, transgender and LGBTQ type issues and conversations and that's not to say and people would be missing both of us if they heard that we don't have compassion for those who struggle with these things. But what we're trying to point out is is like look there's a re- if if God really does exist and Christianity really is true, then there's a way he designed the world in the human body and things. And we flourish when we cooperate with it and we hurt ourselves when we kind of try to break ourselves against it. And so that's what's so, so hard to see in some of these numbers, just the confusion around these topics for the next generation, that we're just going to have to do a better job helping disciple them and to think well about these things, engage people who believe differently in a culture that's more and more accepting of, of the LGBTQ kind of agenda at the cultural level, you know, and well, so the- we just... In my view,
1: the people who are most compassionate are the people who will tell uh, everyone the truth. And the truth is, is that even people who decide to go with so-called sex reassignment surgery have a suicide rate 20 times higher than the general public. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, you are not helping people by encouraging them to mutilate themselves. It would be like if you saw somebody who was an anorexic and saying, you need liposuction. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're too fat. No, you need to tell that person the truth if you're going to save that person, so the people with the true compassion are the people who are telling them the truth, but I digress. I'm sorry. what other What else did you find uh, with regard to sexuality?
2: Yeah, in yeah the several, study? said a lot of the things you know one of the things was just the um, honestly about our culture kind of tutoring the next generation when we asked them the question about is homosexual behavior morally wrong? Mm-hmm. you know Gen x thirty two percent said yes. 25% of millennials, 20% of Gen Z. So mm-hmm. just a continual decline around that, um, that, that, that behavior is outside of God's design. And that's mm-hmm. just, we need to be aware of those as we kind of raise and parent Gen Z, as well as work with them in our youth groups and things like that, recognizing that a lot of that ground has
1: shifted. Now you're a parent. So given what you've learned through this study, and given what you know about Christianity and truth, Give a, give a parent right now a piece of advice or two on dealing with these sexuality issues. What would you say to them?
2: Yeah, I'd say from the beginning, as early as you can, so if you're a parent of young kids, begin talking about and narrating things like, you know, hey, it's good that God made you a boy, you know, and that's a really good thing, or it's good that my, God made you a girl, and that's a really good thing. And then, then at appropriate points, you know, some people get kind of confused about that, and they deserve our compassion. But that's, you know, we live in a broken world. There's lots of ways, you know, that we're confused about things. So that's kind of, you begin to narrate, and that's a good tool in practice, parenting all the way up, is what happens when we don't narrate what's going on culturally is our students and our young people and our kids think there's only one voice in the room. Mm. What we need to do is say at the appropriate levels and ages, hey, guess what? You know, here's an episode of The Flash. Here's a here's a character in this. Notice what they're trying to do here is try to push this agenda. Um, not that they're not worthy of dignity and respect, but do you see what they're doing? So just pointing things out um, as they go along. Second, asking questions and then helping them navigate feeling versus thinking. It's like, well, what does that look like? I mean, I'm one of the big things for this generation is they don't want people to feel bullied or pushed around or anything like that. And that's a really good thing. But that doesn't mean we can't tell people the truth. And we need to help them see what true tolerance looks like in the midst of that as well. And honestly, we can't um, bubble wrap our kids. When it comes mm-hmm. to these things, this is the culture and God's providence that we've been placed in and we're called to be faithful. So that means, honestly, I'm having, a, I'm having conversations with my kids a lot earlier than maybe I would have wanted to, but I want to be the ones that set the framework and the trajectory there and not our culture and not movies and not internet. You know, I mean, just, just a ton of that kind of stuff. So those are a couple things, but don't mm-hmm. be afraid of these topics and, and starting them, setting aside a weekend, getting away, doing it overnight, doing a dinner. Hey, let's talk about these kind of things. A vision for what does it mean to become a young man or a young woman, you know, getting ahead of some of these things, insulating them, inoculating them, so that the first time they're not hearing it is when they're in a pressure-filled kind of peer situation where they're going to feel really kind of outcasted if they have a different view, you know, that's mm. not the popular view. So we just got to yeah. get ahead of some of these conversations.
1: I think you can play spot the lie, which is kind of what you're saying there. You could be watching a TV show and you see something on the TV that you know is against God's will, like say there's just say even if it's just premarital sex and there's no consequences, no negative consequences. You could just say to your kid, hey, what's the lie said here? You don't have to break out the Bible to do this. It doesn't have to be a sermon. You're just asking a question. What is being communicated here? Everybody's laughing. Everyone's having fun. There's never any emotional scarring. There's never any negative consequences. Everything, Everyone is just fine. Is that really true? Is that the way life really works? No, this is a lie. Spot the lie. Play spot the lie with your kids. Now, Jonathan, we're running out of time quickly here. There's so much in this uh, new survey study that you've put out called Gen Z. How do people get more or get the, get the the actual study itself? Where do they go?
2: Yeah, you know, they can come to our website at impact360.org. We'll have links there and images for them to do that. They can also go to whoisgenz.com, and mm-hmm. they can also find that, maybe a recap, replay of kind of the big – launch cast we did with the Barna group on that. But impact360.org has not only the study and the resources and how to get it, but also kind of what we're doing to train the next generation, things like that.
1: Okay, now what do you do down at Impact 360 in particular?
2: Yeah, so we have so if you've been a parent listening to this, you're like, oh my goodness, what do we do with this? We have created environments, and I'm the director of our summer experiences here for high school students, where we create one week and two week experiences During the summer, called Immersion, which is our two week. My friend Sean McDowell, Brett Kunkel, Jay Warner Wallace, Derek Miner, other people come on down. We we spend time with about sixty students or so from around the country, taking them on real world view experiences. We talk about Islam in the classroom. We get out there and we go engage people who believe differently, and so we do stuff with them. We we talk about identity. We talk about discipleship and influence in our one week Propel to kind of how do you ground what it looks like to have influence in today's culture? Who's your identity? How do you grow and be a spiritually mature disciple. Mm-hmm. It's really that. And then we also have a nine month um Christian gap year, <clears throat> which we call Impact Three Sixty Fellows, where you know, high school graduates age eighteen to twenty come and spend nine months with us. And they hear from awesome faculty like yourself. You get to spend time with them and, and things like that. But they get, you know, a month international experience in Brazil. They get to serve and get the gift of space to discover themselves. And so those are those are experiences we offer for high school and college students to help be allies to parents and churches to come alongside the great work you're already doing to help equip people. So that, in a nutshell, is some of what we're doing at Impact 360, and people can find us at impact360.org.
1: And by the way, there was there's a brand-new campus at Impact 360, and it is phenomenal. I would want to go live there for nine months. Trust me, it's south of Atlanta in Pine Mountain, Georgia, it's a ministry initiated by some great folks at Chick-fil-A. And you know, you cannot be a Christian if you don't like Chick-fil-A. I don't know if you guys know that or not, but uh, but Chick-fil-A has started this ministry and it it's a beautiful campus, Jonathan. You gotta just pinch yourself going to work there every day.
2: Oh yeah, it's amazing. We're very blessed. It's about sixty acres, it's state of the art campus. We've you know, we've created an environment where students can come and kinda of get away, but also be equipped and trained and then go on to that next season for whatever God's called them to. Not to stay here long term, but kind of get built up and sent out to be influencers for the kingdom. so we're, we're really excited about what God's doing here at Impact
1: It's great. They need to go there. You can also get Jonathan's book, Welcome to College, updated. just came out uh, last year. It was, uh, it was a, a second edition of that book. So you can get that uh, to prepare your kids before they go to college. Jonathan, great having you on the program.
2: Frank, thanks so much for having me on. It's always a pleasure to be with you.
1: That's Jonathan Morrow, ladies and gentlemen. You need to get this new study if you really want to understand where young people today are coming from. It's called Gen Z. Go to Impact 360 to learn more about it. You can pick up a copy there. Uh, you can also go to Who is Gen Z if you want more. And don't forget, friends, I'm out near the Seattle area this weekend. Next weekend or next uh, early in the next week, I'll be in Shreveport, Louisiana. And then after that, Wake Cross, Georgia. So check our website for more, crossexamine.org. And I will see you here next week. God bless. Take it easy. We
0: work hard to create great content and delivered truth and valuable insights to all of our cross-examined podcast listeners if you agree take 30 seconds out of your busy schedule to leave us a five-star rating so more people like you can find us just look for the cross-examined official podcast three words on itunes google play or stitcher we are truly grateful for your support